This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Very happy to have all of you on board every single weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's our show, and we are always honored that so many of you tune in, and we hope that we continue to grow with all of you as we have been growing, and we're very excited about that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That is our online home for all things related to the program. For some extra tidbits and content, you can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram, that's also available at GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, on Fox Business Network, part of her panel over a couple different segments during that hour. So the 7 p.m. hour, FBN, Kennedy this evening. Hope to see you there. On the radio side, lineup, Jessica Tarloff later on this hour. We will talk to her about the baby formula shortage, foreign policy, and more. So we will be bouncing from topic to topic with Jesse. In our next hour, Congresswoman Young Kim, Republican, California, will rejoin the program. Looking forward to that. And we will also have back in our last hour, Congressman Chip Roy, a Republican of Texas. So we are loaded up with guests and also with big topics to tackle on this Tuesday edition. I will note at the top of the show that it has now been exactly three months since Vladimir Putin and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It has not gone the way they expected it to, to put it very mildly. And they have now been limited to the eastern region of that country. Their designs on taking over the entire nation, toppling the government, occupying Kiev, and everything else that they had in store clearly have not panned out. They've taken a beating in multiple senses, and now they are bogged down fighting that war of attrition with a very determined enemy that is intent on defending their country with virtually the entire free world behind them, rooting for them and assisting them, including the vast majority of the American public. It's been three months, and it's a story that we continue to follow, of course, on The Guy Benson Show. A little bit closer to home, it is primary election day in four states, plus there's a special election in a fifth. There are a couple interesting storylines to keep an eye on this evening, including, or especially, you might argue, in Georgia. There's another one that's interesting in Alabama. We will have full analysis of the results tomorrow, assuming that we have results tomorrow, because we still don't even have an initial winner from a week ago in the Pennsylvania Senate Republican primary. 
I suspect, certainly in Georgia, the big races will probably not come down to the wire. That is my expectation. That is what I've heard from people on the ground. That's what the polling suggests. And what's interesting about Georgia, because as we've mentioned before, it was a crucial state in 2020. It was a crucial state in early 2021. Then we had the giant fight over election reform later in 2021. President Biden and Vice President Harris went down there earlier this year to spread a bunch of lies and racial demagoguery on that same front. And here we are with blockbuster races in the Senate and in the governor's race ahead of us in November. And the matchups in those races are being determined today. Gabriel Sterling from the Secretary of State's office says that they do appear to be on pace to shatter their record for a primary turnout, with the previous record being in 2018, right, in a midterm cycle. We know that they've already blown away the previous early and absentee voting records, not even close, like between doubling and tripling that turnout. Despite all of the nonsense and all the noise and all the Scare tactics and fear-mongering from the left and the media, and a lot of people bought into it, and I'll get more into that here again in a moment. And Sterling, out of that office, who oversees the elections, he believes that by the end of tonight, there will probably be a new record high in this kind of election, in this kind of cycle, in the state of Georgia. After the so-called suppression law was put into place. Stacey Abrams, who thinks she's the governor of Georgia, she lost in 2018 to Brian Kemp. She lost by 55,000 votes. She never conceded the race. She has claimed it was stolen from her. Many people, the brightest lights in the Democratic Party, have repeated that conspiratorial lie over and over again and made her a household name. She's famous and rich now because she lied about an election. Because I guess when you're a Democrat who lies about an election, that's good. When you're a Republican who lies about an election, that's dangerous for the country and bad. I think it's dangerous for the country and bad no matter what letter you have next to your name. But that's not the way a lot of people in the news media tend to cover such things or regard them. Abrams is on the precipice of becoming for the second consecutive cycle, gubernatorial cycle, her party's standard bearer down in Georgia, in that election that she lost, that she wouldn't concede, and now she wants a rematch if Governor Kemp wins the Republican nomination, which is now widely expected, based on really all of the polling at this point. Question now is margin, and perhaps we'll get that answer pretty early on this evening. We'll see. But you would think Abrams might be taking this opportunity with some division on the Republican side. That's what makes me nervous. I'll probably have more to say about that in the days to come. Divisions on the Republican side is what, that is the phenomenon that has allowed the Democrats to gain power in the state of Georgia. Donald Trump lost the state of Georgia in 2020 very narrowly. If he had gotten the same number of votes as some down-ballot Republicans, he would have won the state. 
Then in 2021, because a certain percentage of Republican voters felt like their votes wouldn't count and Trump was beating the drum on that, they didn't turn out in the runoff election for U.S. Senate. Two seats at stake, and the Democrats barely won both of those seats. There are still divisions playing out, those fissures dating back to 2020 on the GOP side, those represent the best chance Democrats have in this tough environment for them to continue to gain control over the state of Georgia. There's also an opportunity for the people of Georgia to say not only no, but hell no. This is not a blue state all of a sudden. We're not going to have Stacey Abrams as our governor. We're not giving Raphael Warnock six more years in the United States Senate to vote with Chuck Schumer and the left-wingers in the party. Warnock doesn't even pretend to be a moderate. That's what's at stake. That is what is coming up. That is what is on the agenda. That is what is going to count in November. And Abrams has her party largely behind her. Right? She's sort of at the front of the pack here, leading the Democratic Party in Georgia with a big smile on her face, almost as if she's sitting in a classroom surrounded by masked children who are like six. That's how big that smile is for her because she's got the spotlight on her. The problem is, from her perspective, rather than charging into the general election cycle after the primaries tonight with a full head of steam and a divided opposition, she is playing defense. She is doing damage control. We played you the clip yesterday. She made a very strange choice over the weekend to say that Georgia might be the best place to do business in America, but it's the worst place to live, the worst state to live. That's what she said. Then she started ticking down a number of reasons why, which left out big items. For example, unemployment way down in the state of Georgia. It's a very robust employment situation in Georgia. The population up. People are flocking to Georgia, not because it's a dystopian hellhole, which is how Stacey Abrams is trying to describe her own state that she wants to govern. And that based on her weird telling of events, she's like, in her own mind, already the incumbent. Just running down the state, saying it's the worst place to live in America, the worst state out of 50. She said wages are down. That's not true. Unemployment's down. Wages are up. Are wages up enough across the board to overcome Joe Biden's inflation at the national level? For many, no. It's not Brian Kemp's fault or the Republicans' fault. That's what the Democrats have wrought with their terrible, reckless, stupid, predictably harmful economic policies out of Washington. Which would have been even worse, by the way, if Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff just had a few more friends in the U.S. Senate to overcome some hesitancy from a guy like Joe Manchin. They were ready to spend $5 trillion more trillion. Pour that gasoline on this inflation fire. They were a vote or two away from doing exactly that in the United States Senate. And Stacey Abrams supported every single item of that inflationary agenda, the big tax and spend binge That's what she's there for. Her pet issue, of course, is lying about elections and race. Claiming that there's suppression and racial grievance and all that stuff. That's her bread and butter. That's how she's gotten really prominent 
and very wealthy. It's been a lucrative grift over these last few years. But then she went and stepped in it, talking about Georgia being the worst place to live in the country, where she's now saying, oh, that was inelegant. I stated that inelegantly. Well, it's not just an inelegant framing. It's what she chose to say, by the way, and the audience clapped for it. Fellow left-wing partisans who apparently hate the state of Georgia. Most Georgians don't. And a lot of people outside of Georgia have decided, you know what, let's go there because of the growth, because of the opportunity, because of the jobs, because of the freedom, because they weren't sitting around stifled during COVID after some tough choices were made by Governor Kemp. Her story's backwards. He said, oh, I'm sorry, it's so inelegant for me have said it for me to frame it that way, to call it the worst state to live in the country. Well, that's what she said. That is her unofficial campaign slogan now. Georgia We're the worst. Her words. The actual incumbent, Brian Kemp, the Republican, reacted to that in cut one. And this is just a layup for him. I'll tell you, I've heard a lot of people sending me messages about that. Just can't believe it, especially from somebody that's gone from, you know, owing taxes to now having two houses in the state. Uh, It's surprising you would do that if you don't really like our state or love our state like I do. I mean, fish in a barrel there. She walked right into it, and now she's doing damage control on that. She's also doing damage control on the data that we have been sharing with you over and over again. And in fact, let's get the stinger ready, because it is time once again for one of these. It's a Guy Benson Show, Jim Crow on steroids, Georgia voter suppression update. As we told you from the Secretary of State's office, they believe they are on pace for a record-setting turnout. They've already totally smashed the record on early and absentee votes. Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden, the president, and a bunch of people in the media and a bunch of progressive activists and a bunch of corporate leaders all told the people of Georgia and the people of the country for months in an acrimonious fight that a big program of racist Voter suppression that was worse than Jim Crow in the president's words. That that was being inflicted on the state of Georgia. And now the proof is in the proverbial pudding. It's not true at all. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting today that it's gone very smoothly. People are showing up. Voting has been brisk and efficient. Very few lines. Very few snags. As I said Record-setting numbers early, so more than 850,000 people have already voted before Election Day. Record numbers of black people participating in this primary. All the things that they said were not only a little bit wrong, they were extremely wrong, outrageously wrong. And Stacey Abrams is also playing defense on that, doing damage control on that. And her line is amazing. She's now saying just because there's record-setting turnout and participation doesn't mean that this was not a restrictive or suppressive law. It's still suppression, she claims. Here she is in Cut 28. Listen to this spin. What is happening is that people are looking at one metric and trying to extrapolate an entire narrative. And the narrative is very clear. Voter suppression is not about stopping voting. It is about (laughs) impeding certain voters from participating. And those voters, as you pointed out, are unlikely to be highly active in a primary. But that said, 
we do know that we are seeing outrage driving voters of color to the polls. And that's the other thing that we used to say, and I, I said constantly, the antidote to voter suppression is voter turnout. Yeah. They're going to try to make it hard. So the more of us who show up, we overwhelm the system with our presence. But to let them off this, of the hook yeah. for what they've done simply because they didn't do it as well as they thought yeah. is, I think, nonsensical. It's amazing. Oh, they didn't do the suppression as well as they wanted to, but it was still suppression. Because voter suppression, she says, is not about stopping voting. Yes, it is. The whole point of suppression is to suppress. There has been nothing suppressed. There is no suppression. They've set new records in participation, and they've blown through them. It's not even close. And then she comes to her unfalsifiable claim, which is the beauty of it for her. Oh, actually... They tried to suppress, but what they really did was outrage us. So it was our righteous outrage caused by the lies that we told that proves that we can overcome their suppression, even though the suppression absolutely still happened. Well, you're just trying to take one data point and extrapolate. No, this is a very big data point. The first one, the first test of the lie, and the lie has crumbled. And the spin is pathetic. Oh, they suppressed. They tried their best, but it was our righteous outrage that broke through it. Nonsense. They said they were going to make it very difficult for people to vote, especially of a certain skin color. They lied, and they know it. And this is the weak sauce that they offer in response. I hope people are paying attention. Accountability awaits. That opportunity is in November, but it starts today in Georgia and some other states as well. We've got a break. I'm running late. Much more to get to on today's show. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson, back on the Guy Benson Show. Went long in that last segment, so just very quickly here before we get to our first guest in the next segment, a couple things to keep an eye on tonight in the primaries. I talked a lot about Georgia in the last segment, and I have a few more things to say about Georgia later, but there are races in Texas, Arkansas, there's a special in Minnesota, and then Alabama is intriguing. There's the gubernatorial primary down there, but also the Senate primary, where Mo Brooks, who's a congressman, had been endorsed by former President Donald Trump. He was looking dead in the water, Brooks was, so Trump unendorsed him. And since the unendorsement, Brooks has been surging and might make the runoff after all. Could that happen tonight in a field really of three? We'll find out soon enough. Full coverage here. Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back together with all of you on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. GuyBensonShow.com. With us is Jesse Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, also head of research at Bustle, and chief romance and baby correspondent here at the Guy Benson Show. And Jesse, as always, it's good to have you and your many roles back on the air. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. I would like to begin with the final hat that I mentioned that you wear here on the program, chief baby correspondent at the Guy Benson (laughs) Show. On this baby formula shortage issue that we talked about last time you were here, I know it is still an issue. I've heard from so many friends of mine who are dealing with this and grappling with it and sort of going through what you described, which is asking friends to pick some up if they happen to see them, calling around to multiple stores, sometimes driving around to multiple stores. We've seen some criticism even from Democrats in Congress about sort of a hands-off approach for a very long time from the administration. Now we know they've done this airlift, which I'm not exactly sure is, is the win they seem to think that it is, having to bring in baby formula from Europe for American babies because of a shortage here. Are you experiencing any change yet, any improvement yet in your neck of the woods in Manhattan? And how do you think this is playing more broadly? So it's still not better in Manhattan, and the delivery options are still pretty bad. Like, you know, between Targets and Walmarts of the world, Amazon is still completely out of stock. My mother-in-law, who lives about an hour and a half into New Jersey at the Jersey Shore, uh, struck gold at a random Target and got four big cans. So we're in good position right now. And I also want to make sure to emphasize the fact that I know actually only one mother who I believe isn't isn't behaving properly and is hoarding baby formula. Everyone else is just trying to get by and make sure that they can share and help each other as much as possible, which has been something really heartening for me to see, especially because Mm -hmm. so many of the formulas that are missing are special needs formulas. And, you know, those kids really don't have alternatives. You can't just pop them on another formula because the one that you usually take isn't available. Um, And also shout out to a lot of the viewers of The Five who have been tweeting at me asking which brand I need and looking around in their stores for me all over the country. So just incredibly sweet. Oh, that's um, really nice. And kind gestures. Yeah, really nice. And one woman in particular whose name is something like, California loves Trump, definitely does not agree with my politics and is doing it anyway. Um, so <laughs> See, lib, lib babies need food too, Jesse. They got to eat. They got to eat so they can become uh, big government overlords. Um, so Or not, or rebel, or rebel against their mothers and become not my baby. right-wing conservatives. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Talk to Juan Williams. <laughs> I've spoken to Juan. I don't know what he and Delise did wrong, but something funny happened in that household. Um, I'm just kidding. Well, I love Delise is a Delise is a conservative, so I think I think Delise won not that really. fight. Really, it's not like 
she's not conservative like Rafi is conservative. Yeah, the, no, the kids are very conservative. So it's been just a big, right. big, I would say, achievement in the Williams household for all that to happen. <laughs> and, I, and I hope that achievement happens as well for sweet Cleo one day. But for her to get to that point to be able to become a free thinker, she's she has to be able to eat, eat today. Yes. Yeah, so she can eat today. And, um, you know, Operation Fly Formula was only for hospitals and doctors who absolutely need it. So hopefully the Abbott plant will be up and running in the next couple of weeks. I know they've cleared the uh, FDA hurdles and we can get um, back in track here. But it is amazing how this story, which has been a problem for months, just suddenly became, you know, the national zeitgeist, right? It was like gas prices and formula. And that, you know, and that's what everyone was talking about suddenly, um, which I think is a good thing because it's, uh, it's of huge importance and it raises issues about, you know, how private business operates, what the role the government is supposed to be in this, why everyone ignored the whistleblower, which seems like a major fail. Um, and then also that only four companies control 99% of the country's formula. That's obviously yeah, and, and then like the regulations. Oh, Right. Like there's so many regulations about what you can even legally buy in this country where there's a lot of brands that work perfectly fine. that are perfectly safe from other countries that are just not allowed here. And I think a lot of people look at what's happening and say, "Okay, there's something amiss. There's something broken about the status quo that got us into this situation, into this mess. Yeah, it's uh, it's got to be dealt with. And. I, I don't know the reason, and I, when we touched on this a little bit the last time we spoke about how it's possible that we got to this point, um, because I, I, it's something so necessary and universal, and you know, conversations about formula feeding versus breastfeeding are ones that I'm happy to have as a culture. But you know, everyone who certainly has had a baby knows that formula is necessary um, to keep babies alive. Even if they are breastfeeding, most are on a mix anyway. Um, So it's terrible, but hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Meanwhile, to jump to a very different subject, I know that you've been commenting on this and thinking about this. President Biden abroad, he's making his uh, his swing through the Far East. And in Japan, He was asked about what the United States would or would not do if the Chinese Communist Party government in Beijing were to invade or try to take over our democratic allies in Taiwan. And he's given different answers on this over the last year where he'll say something and then it gets walked back. Here he was in Asia. The whole purpose of this trip from Peter Ducey's sources, at least a major purpose of the trip was to solidify some of these alliances and to send a message to China. I was asking questions about Taiwan before he even arrived in South Korea. He was then asked a very predictable question about Taiwan. And in the clip that's now been played all over the place, that went down in cut 12. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. Yes, that's the commitment we made, to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that. It was a yes from Biden. Then we got the walk back from the administration, from the White House. And what was weird about it to me 
Jesse, and I talked about this a little bit on special report yesterday. Not only did they say what the president meant was, they didn't say that, or they didn't say what our policy is. They said, as the president said, as the president made clear, and then they said the opposite of what he actually said. So, like, he didn't really say it. He didn't make it clear. And now, belatedly, he himself is now engaged in that same mop-up with the new clarity, if you want to call it that, which sounds very much not like what he had said in the clip that we just played for you. Here's the new one, cut 11. Mr. President, is the policy of strategic ambiguity towards Taiwan dead? No. Could you explain? No. Mr. President, would you send troops to um, Taiwan if China invaded? The policy has not changed at all. I stated that when I made my statement yesterday. Mr. President, you said that you would intervene militarily to defend Taiwan, though. And then that was the end of the Q&A. There were loud camera noises. So, you know, like the, the shutters were pop in there. So it's hard to hear Biden's responses. But they said, would you, is your strategic ambiguity uh, policy of the United States, is that dead? No, was the response. Can you explain? No. And then he just said, our policy has not changed at all. I stated that when I said my statement yesterday, which is, with all due respect, not actually what he stated. Okay, Jesse, two parts to this, now that we have that whole setup and all that sound to bring us to the question. Number one, What exactly is the policy here? And number two, is it concerning to you? I have my thoughts on it, but is it concerning to you that on big issues of geopolitical import, whether it's whether U.S. troops are going into Ukraine, whether it's there should be regime change in Moscow, whether it's the U.S. committing to defend Taiwan militarily, the president has a tendency to say something out loud on the record And then everyone sort of white knuckles this thing, waiting to see if that answer will stick. And oftentimes it does not. And they try to gaslight us as if he did not say exactly what he said. How do you read and process some of this stuff? So it's obviously not ideal um, for the president to be speaking seemingly out of turn with policy. And there was a shot that caught um, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state, as he said it, and he's like shuddering, you know, he's like, oh my God, what, what is happening? Uh, So it obviously wasn't planned that he was going to say, yes, we would support them militarily. Now, I think he probably could have made that a bit nuanced and maybe he didn't mean boots on the ground, but he meant military support like we're doing for Ukraine. And my expectation is that is what the policy is and that China knows that. And that's why they are not, they up until this point have not invaded um, because they don't want to start something like that. Um, But it's obviously what staffers in an incredibly tough position. And, you know, you want consistency as much as possible. Now, not to play the whataboutism game, but there are a lot of people who were very positive about Donald Trump's approach to foreign policy, which was basically misdirection. Like, who knows if he's serious, right? Like, maybe he's best friends with Kim Jong-un. Maybe he isn't. And maybe it's better that we live in a world where no one actually knows what Biden, what the policy is versus, you know, what Biden is saying. Um, I tend to not feel that way. I didn't feel that way about Donald Trump. I thought it was really a big problem. Um, and I'd like consistency here, but I think that well, and, and Biden, right, asking, Biden campaigned to not be that. 
right? Biden's right. like, if you don't like what just happened the last four years and you're tired of the chaos and you want reliable adults in the room to bring us back to normal, vote for us. <laughs> so I, I don't think it's really a great excuse to say, oh, well, you know, some people like this about Trump. Some people did. One of them was not Joe Biden. He campaigned against that whole approach. Yeah, I, I totally understand. I'm not saying that it is my preference. It's also not nearly as unhinged as Donald Trump. He's not taking that as many political risks as uh, the former. True. And, and let me did, let me ask but... you this then, because and I'm and you might disagree. And you know that I have plenty of criticisms of President Trump. And when I think that they're justified, I've said them and I've let the chips fall where they may. One that I'm so I'm not trying to be like a weird apologist here. However, I kind of got the feeling ultimately Trump was so unpredictable and Trump was very Trumpian in the way that he would send a bunch of different signals and it had a lot of people wondering what does he actually mean. I think in some ways that could have been detrimental, but in other ways it could have been positive in the sense that he left enemies guessing. And they didn't really know, ultimately, when push came to shove, what Trump might do or might be capable of. And they were therefore afraid of him. And that may have actually benefited the U.S. in some important ways. This, if I felt like that's what they were trying to do, like a good cop, bad cop, really muddying the waters on purpose, I think I'd be more willing to defend it or at least not criticize it. I just don't see it through that lens here. I see it through Biden not processing these thoughts properly, making mistakes, and having someone with a mop behind him at all times, and then ultimately coming back and saying, oh, yeah, that that thing that got mopped up never actually really existed in the first place. If I felt like they were doing this in a way to kind of play maybe some strategic mind games with adversaries, that would be one thing. I just don't really interpret that from him this way. That's me. I I understand. I, I fully take your point on that. The thing also is that no one believes that Joe Biden is going to do the crazy thing, but they genuinely didn't know if Donald Trump was going to, right? Like Joe Biden has all of the very normal infrastructure in place. All of his secretaries have been confirmed. They're all people with a lot of experience. Um, it's not like a cabinet full of rogue people that are kind of on 10-day contracts, right? So um, a point well taken there, and it's not the thesis I would go with, especially since, as you pointed out, Biden ran on a return to normalcy. And normalcy for us in terms of these policies are to not say that we're going for regime change in Russia and to not say that we're going to militarily back Taiwan. Now, I think right, and, and have giant, you know, international debacles like Afghanistan, right? It's sort of an, an accumulative thing that is added up. And part of the, you know, erratic nature of Trump might scare some people, including voters here at home, but also some bad people abroad. I'm just not sure that the bad people abroad are afraid of Joe Biden. And I think that might be part of the problem. At least that's one of the points that conservatives would make as we watch the performance rhetorical and on substance from this president within this administration. But I I get the point that you're making, Jesse. Very, very quickly, less than a minute, what are you looking at tonight? What is most intriguing to you in the primaries that will be decided this evening? 
Um, the Texas House primary, so Jessica Cisneros against, in the rematch against Henry Cuellar, um, it's the 18th district. I, I think, um, you know, the progressive establishment divide, we saw um, big victories in Pennsylvania already in Oregon. That was another one. Kurt Schrader, a blue dog dem, uh, lost his primary, or lost to his primary challenger, who's a, an AOC acolyte. So interested in following that. And then I'm so excited for the New York mayhem that will come in August uh, from the primaries here. But oh, yeah. uh, and and one, and maybe I we'll get maybe we'll get all the results counted in New York by like mid-September <laughs> based on the way that it's gone in New York in the past in California. We're seeing some of the long processes playing out in Pennsylvania as well. We don't Know what happened in one of those key statewide primaries a week later, which I think is crazy in the U.S. anywhere. That's my take. Jessica Tarloff, we've got to go for now. So we'll put a pin in the conversation and resume the talk at some point with Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, and chief romance and baby correspondent at The Guy Benson Show, Jessica Tarloff. Jesse, thank you. Thank you so much. Talk to you later, guys. And we will be right back after this very short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we were talking at the top about how the Jim Crow 2.0 on steroids voter suppression lie is unspooling. It is collapsing. And the people responsible for that lie are really struggling to grapple with the reality that debunks their lies. One of them is on MSNBC Cut 26. The reason that communities of color in Georgia don't have the same access to the polls is a lie. It's BS. As, as, as you're reporting, and Nick's entire body of reporting on the voter suppression laws will, will prove. So they took away access to the polls on the back of a big lie in service of Donald Trump. I think took access uh, absolutely because of of a, of a lie, but also I would say that there also is racism in there, and the racism is a the lie, belt, right? right? Right, exactly. It's like the lie and racism, which is a lie, which is that these black people don't, they don't deserve the access to, to citizenship in the way that other Americans do, that they haven't worked for it, that they don't that they don't understand sort of the the weight of American democracy, and as a result, we need to make decisions for them. I think those two things are so intertwined in this country. That is a lie. From Yamish Alcindor, not a commentator, that would be unhinged enough, that smear. A journalist, a reporter at NBC News. Amazing. We'll be right back. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It is a new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our second of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Many ways to listen live there. Also, there's the podcast. If you miss even a moment of any show, that podcast on demand, free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. So set your DVRs. You can tune in live. Always a pleasure to join my friend on the TV. As we begin this middle hour, a Fox News alert. The Dow closes a little bit up today, up 50 points, ending the day at 31,931. And also another Fox News alert to bring to your attention. We are just following this, a developing story out of Texas where 
there are at least two fatalities and others wounded at a shooting in and around an elementary school, the Robb Elementary School. And there are conflicting reports about exactly what happened. Was this a shooting near the school where the suspect then fled into the school? Were there more people shot at the school? It is unclear exactly what happened. There are reports that the suspect is in custody, and there are at least 15 casualties, some dead, I believe at least two are dead, and then other people wounded, and some of them are children. So just an absolutely horrific story out of Texas, again with some sketchy details about exactly what happened, but the details are not going to be good once they are sorted out. And so our prayers go to that community, to that school, to those families, and for those who might be fighting for their lives and for those who have lost loved ones in this a violent episode down there today. That just a developing story this afternoon. Joining me now is Congresswoman Young Kim of California in the 39th Congressional District out in that state. She serves on the, Fair, the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Small Business Committee in the House. And Congresswoman, welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. It is good to have you. Thank you, Guy. Always good to be with you on Guy Benson's show. And uh, you just mentioned about the shooting incident in Texas, and my prayers and thoughts also go out to those wounded, especially to those who died. And uh, as you are following the news, I will also do the same, because we recently also had shooting incident right here in my uh, district in Orange County, and I'm following that uh, race very closely, too. I mean, that uh, incident there. So no crimes, no hate of any kind, whatever the motives may be, has no place in our society and in our community. So my prayers go out, especially because it's happened, as you said, at a uh, elementary school. And as a mother of four and two grandma of two young kids now, I am really praying for the safety of everyone that is uh, affected by this. That's just horrific, and it makes your stomach sink just to hear anything about that. And when you start to see that there have been not just victims but fatalities it just you know it gets it gets worse and let's hope that the damage is limited and mitigated but my goodness what an just unspeakably horrible thing to happen of all places at an elementary school just it's hard to imagine too many things that are worse than that and congressman thank you for those words and uh, we will be following that i know as you mentioned you will as well something else that you've been following is the pain that a lot of americans have been experiencing now for a year on inflation and we get a lot of you know blame flying around from the administration a lot of finger pointing they're holding nonsense scapegoat votes about you know price gouging and they're holding a total show vote about the FDA on the shortage on baby formula and they want to say oh look the republicans uh, you know don't care about these things you have introduced legislation to try to actually get to the underlying problems when it comes to inflation. What do you see as those problems and what are the solutions that you're trying to pursue? Thank you for asking that question. As you mentioned, the Biden administration continues to blame everyone but himself 
for this administration's failure to address that persistent high prices and inflation. Since Biden has been in office for about a year and a half now, crisis after crisis, under his leadership, we've seen higher prices uh, going up, the border crisis, inflation crisis, crimes of, you know, of any nature. This, he needs to come to the table and actively acknowledge that the crisis exists. I'm doing that. I increased, uh, I introduced legislation because inflation does not discriminate. It impacts everyone, especially our low and middle income class Americans, and especially those living on fixed income like our seniors, the retirees. So the legislation that I introduced recently is called the Combating Painful Inflation Act, or CPI Act, to make sure that our federal government is looking at the impacts of this. What are the impacts? How does it affect our families, our businesses? How does it impact our pocketbooks? And I also joined uh, my colleagues in introducing the Inflation Prevention Act, to make sure Congress is not adding more to the inflation. And I'm telling my colleagues, do not pass any measures until year-over-year inflation rate drops below 4.5%. This is a common-sense thing, and we need to get this under control because Americans are facing the highest inflation in over 40 years. And that is driving up just about everything. You mentioned earlier the cost of uh, the baby formula, diapers. Now that I have two young grandkids, this is real because I go to the markets. I go to, uh, you know, stores to purchase these baby formalized diapers and anything. I am surprised how expensive everything has become since the time I raised my kids. It's real. It's personal to me. Yeah, and that's, you know, you'll, you'll pay a lot if you can find it in the case of baby formula with the shortage. Something else that is extremely expensive right now is gasoline. I mean, all over the country, the average is over $4 a gallon. I know it is worse in California. It always seems to be worse in California. Some of those numbers are just astronomical and, and could go higher still. One thing that conservatives have argued sometimes is that even though it's you know politically painful for the Democrats and painful for the American people, there is a certain ideology within the progressive movement in the Democratic Party that is happy to see these prices go up on gasoline because they view that that like that's a necessary element of transitioning away from fossil fuels. That is something that Joe Biden has said he wants to do, get us off of fossil fuels. And he said while over in Asia this week that we're in the middle of an incredible, quote, transition that he hopes will actually end up benefiting the country. Here's what he said. Cut 10. Listen, here's the situation when it comes to the gas prices. Uh, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that, God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger unless we rely on fossil fuels when this is over. So it sounds like he's saying that, yes, it's wrenching, yes, it's painful, but it's part of the necessary pain to go through this amazing, incredible transition to a fossil fuel-free future on the other end of it. What's your reaction to that quote from the president? What the heck is he talking about? He's completely away from the reality. Look, gas prices in California are well over $6 a gallon on average, but in some parts of my district, the average price is over $7 per gallon. Wow, you know, it's it's better for our economy and national security and environment to produce energy right here in America instead of relying on other countries. Look, the Democrats blocked the bill to promote U.S. energy 
not once, not twice, but six times. And instead, they put on a bill to implement socialist price controls, just like Venezuela. We tried this in the 70s, and look what happened. It led to record high inflation, and this only exacerbates and makes our problem worse. What we need to do is we need to unleash that American energy and increase production here so we can lower gas prices and protect our energy independence. Look, what's worse in California for months, I've been urging Governor Newsom to suspend the gas tax that is hurting our Californians at the gas pump. We asked for just six months of suspension. Instead, the Democrat legislature in Sacramento, they passed the bill that increased gas tax from 51 cents per gallon to 54 cents per gallon. Only in California, only under this progressive liberal Democrats leadership, and only the progressive and Joe Biden talks about we are doing better when we are not. We are going through this crisis after crisis, and uh, we need to really, like I said, we need American energy independence, and we can produce more cleaner and safer oil and gas right here in America. That's what we need to do. And, Congresswoman, there was a really good clip that's going around. It's just a few minutes long of Senator Sullivan from Alaska going through just in the last few weeks some of the hostile actions toward domestic production of energy that the Biden administration has undertaken. It's a pretty devastating clip that puts the lie to this claim that, oh, they're trying everything. They really aren't. They're doing the opposite. I would encourage people to check that out online. Congresswoman Young Kim of California 39, a Republican. Congresswoman, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. You bet. We will take a quick break. When we come back, I want to update you on something intriguing that happened in the street in the streets of Iran. That's next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson show. You might recognize if you're listening on the live broadcast, the bumper music is the theme song from Tehran on Apple TV, which we are very much enjoying here. Season two is being released weekly, and we are eager for the next episode to come out. It's about an Israeli spy behind enemy lines in Iran, trying to carry out various missions. Some of it is extremely exciting and plausible. Some of it, I think, strains credulity a bit, but you kind of put that aside and allow for some artistic license and just try to enjoy it. It is a little stressful, right? It is definitely intense, the show. But we enjoy it and occasionally suspend some disbelief in order to maintain that enjoyment. But I saw this headline that very much made me think about the show, but this is real life. Earlier this week, a senior officer in Iran's elite IRGC, so the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is a terrorist organization that based on many reports, the Biden administration shockingly is trying to delist that group from the terrorist list officially for the U.S. government. You have many people concerned about our national and global security who are adamantly opposed to that concession that has at least been floated, if not formally offered to the Iranians via the Russians in those stalled nuclear talks. I read a piece just this week by an Iranian dissident who's escaped to the United States begging the administration not to do that because of the deep evil 
the malevolent influence of the IRGC in Iran and particularly in the region. So one of the leaders of that terrorist group, which is a wing of the Iranian military, was killed outside his home in Tehran by gunmen on a motorcycle. So this was a carefully targeted, it would appear, assassination. And it's not the first time that motorcycle-driving assailants have taken out significant figures in Iran. Whether leaders attached to the government, nuclear scientists, we've seen that before. And so here is someone who, by the way, was rumored or reported to be one of the officials within this organization in charge of targeting Israelis abroad. This guy gets whacked. He gets knocked off in his own country by unknown assassins who then fled and seemed to have escaped. That last word. It's like the show I was talking about come to life in some ways. And you cannot help but draw the conclusion that if this guy was in fact targeting Israelis abroad in the region or even farther afield, if that was part of his portfolio, you might see a certain secret service mark him for death. And they can be pretty good at carrying out such things when necessary. And apparently this one was deemed necessary. So, look, I have no special knowledge. There's plenty of speculation. It doesn't take a genius to conclude potentially at least a working hypothesis that the Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, said, we're going to take this guy out, and then they did, using a method that has been used before, allegedly by them. And if that's what happened, then more power to them. Relatedly, but on a separate note, I saw this tweet just yesterday from a reporter at CBS News who was promoting a press release that came out from the CIA, our Central Intelligence Agency, yesterday. This was from a Monday statement informing the American public that the CIA has added two stars to its somewhat famous memorial wall at their headquarters in Langley, where they honor the lives and sacrifices of officers at the CIA who have died in the line of duty, who have given their lives in service to the United States and to the intelligence community. And so this week, just yesterday, the CIA added two additional stars to that wall, bringing the total to 139. And I bring that to your attention for this reason. We have no idea who these people are. We don't know their identities. We don't know how they died, where they died, why they died, or any of those details. That is all presumably highly classified. All we know is that two people working for the CIA, officers at the CIA, have been killed, have died, have given their lives. They've committed their lives. They had committed their careers to helping keep us safe. It can be extremely dangerous work, espionage and various related projects. Sometimes so dangerous that, yes, it's lethal. 
And sometimes the people even closest to them in their lives don't really know what they're doing and may not even get a full explanation of how their lives came to an end. The general public certainly will not know. And they go into these risks, into these potential sacrifices, knowing that they won't get the glory, even if they pay the ultimate price. They know that, and they accept the risk anyway, and they take it anyway. They take it on for us. So I have nothing to tell you about who these people are. Male, female, skin color, background, nothing. They are two anonymous stars, just like all the other ones in that wall. But those stars represent people who deserve our undying, eternal gratitude. All the rest of us who get to live our lives in freedom. So I want to let you know, two more stars, 139 on that wall, just a few miles from where I sit, Langley, Virginia, at the CIA. Whoever you are, rest in peace and thank you. And to their families, whoever they are, we are grateful. The Guy Benson Show returns after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our podcast is available around the clock on demand every day for free. GuyBensonShow.com. So this show is produced out of New York and based out of D.C. So we tend to have maybe a better beat on the crime situation in these cities than elsewhere. We see the statistics. We hear the anecdotes. We get some of those major headlines. But in terms of the day-to-day, New York and D.C. in our feeds, on our local news, and it's just been another tragically typical few days in both of those cities. Here in D.C., Quiet Wyatt, our assistant producer based down here, He sent a group text earlier about a shooting right in his neighborhood, right by where he lives, last evening as he was going home from work. And then we got the update today about the investigation, multiple shots fired. And that's just almost like a shrug situation. That is every single day, the shootings, the carjackings. I'll tell you this, Adam had drinks last night with some former colleagues And they were meeting sort of near a hotel, not in a neighborhood that is terribly dangerous, but would not necessarily be bustling at that time of night on a Monday. And we were debating whether he would drive in. He was only going to have a drink and then drive back. And just because of the crime situation, we decided he would Uber. That was literally the deciding factor. Was it worth it? Was it worth driving one of our cars into the district, parking it? in that area, and then driving back to Virginia. Would that be worth it? And the decision was no. And Wyatt has heard about shootings, carjackings, other violent felonies right in the immediate vicinity of where he lives. Meanwhile, in New York City, a 19-year-old man is now hospitalized after being apparently randomly, viciously attacked by another man carrying a hatchet. 
in broad daylight, 10 a.m. on a Monday, about 20 blocks from Fox News. In fact, this attack happened on the same avenue where Fox News headquarters is located, 21 blocks north of this incident. Just a broad daylight hatchet attack. This comes on the heels of the horrible story we mentioned yesterday. Sunday morning, 48-year-old man was on his way to brunch. Goldman Sachs employee. I've heard through friends and connections in the city that this guy was gay. I have no idea if that was part of the motivation behind this senseless, unprovoked crime. But down on the subway, this guy was just minding his own business and someone shot him to death. Police believe they know who might have done it. They have a suspect or a person of interest, someone named Andrew Abdullah, who has a rap sheet a mile long, 19 prior arrests. That's who the police have been seeking in this crime, at least for further questioning. And Fox was reporting just before we went on the air today that apparently an arrest has been made in that case. So let's wait for more details about what emerges from the questioning, etc. This guy was on his way to brunch on a Sunday, gunned down for absolutely no reason from what we can tell in New York City. And people are very much on edge. When you see crime near the top of the list of issues that people care about, It's because these are not isolated incidents being sensationalized by the media. It's because people can feel it from widespread petty crime and lawlessness, like looting and that sort of thing, all the way up to extremely violent, heinous crimes. There is a sense in the country, borne out in many cases by statistics, that there is a problem. And I think a lot of people can trace it back to the disrespect and demonization of police two years ago. And the, I would say, increase in woke pro-crime district attorneys running the show in a lot of cities where they have made clear that criminals will be pampered. People arrested for significant crimes will be processed and released Almost immediately, we talk about incentives at the southern border. These are incentives for criminals. And the incentives are working in that sense and making law-abiding people feel less and less safe. I think the tide is turning. People are angry. I think some of the excesses and insanity of the George Floyd era, and he was murdered and people were rightly outraged, but the cascade of events and rioting, and anti-police sentiment. It was a massive overcorrection. By the way, on that front, the Washington Post really screwed up. Last evening, they published a big feature story they'd been working on, a retrospective two years after Floyd was murdered. They got in the headline, in the story, in the tweet about it, they got the way he was killed wrong. They said he was shot and killed in police custody. That is not what happened to George Floyd. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer with a knee on his neck, suffocating him. That's what happened. I just don't know how that gets through all the multiple layers of editing that 
major news organizations always boast about when they are often sneering at other media outlets that don't have the prestige or all of that expertise that they have. That is a big one to get past the goalie. In any case, we are now witnessing and living through the aftermath, the backlash to what happened. And that result is people feeling less safe and being less safe. And I think now you have some people scrambling to try to make amends, try to make up for the damage done, but they are being fought, especially in the Democratic Party, within their own party, by a lot of people who still believe very much what they say, the craziness, the insanity, about defunding the police, reducing funding for police, abolishing police, abolishing prisons. That mentality has more than just a toehold in the modern Democratic Party. And I think it's a huge liability for them because some people might turn on their televisions and watch things like the interview that aired live this morning on Fox News Channel on America's Newsroom, in which the sister of that man who was shot in the subway appeared with Dana Perino. And Dana asked her about this horrible crime, this tragedy that has befallen the family. Her brother's life snuffed out in an instant. Here is Griselda Vile, the sister of this victim, earlier today, cut 18. When you were first commenting about the story, you assumed that the shooter would have been in jail before and been released, and that if he got caught, he might be released again. You turned out to be right. Andrew Abdullah, if he turns out to be the suspect that they're looking for, has 19 prior arrests, including a gun charge, assault, robbery, menacing, and grand larceny. And so you might not have wanted to be right, but you were right. How did you know that? It's been almost a year since I witnessed a shooting in my own neighborhood. And cooperating with the police, I had the opportunity to see people who've been arrested and convicted in my neighborhood. And I asked the police officer, it looks like the same person. And he said, it is. They keep committing crimes and they keep returning to the same neighborhood and they're violent and they're aggressive. Imagine this. Imagine you're the sibling or a loved one of Daniel Enriquez, who's the victim here. And you have personally witnessed Crimes in your neighborhood, you cooperate with the police, and you see the people responsible for the crimes let back out of jail on a regular basis. And you get concerned and angry about that phenomenon. And then, allegedly, and we'll wait for all the details to come in, but there is at least a solid chance that that phenomenon contributed to the death of your own brother. And you can hear that she is really struggling to get through this interview. And who can blame her? She's on television. She's heartbroken. She's grieving. Her voice is wavering. She continued in cut 19 this morning. After everything was said and done, when I went to the police at the precinct, they said he's already out. Mm -hmm. So the man who who shot somebody in public at 2.30 in the afternoon by 11 o'clock, was free to go in the New York streets, in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I had to deal with that for 
for almost a year thinking, you know, the crime's going down. We're going through the pandemic. I'm trying to hold it together for my kids. We moved to a great neighborhood. We have a lot of friends. We do community service. I work in Queens to be closer to my school and my students. So when this happened, I didn't want it to be true. I didn't even want, I didn't even want to find out. I thought the police was going to say it was an, a car accident. And it wasn't. It was a murder. An absolute nightmare. And you might say, why is this woman in this state giving this interview? It's because she wants to. Because she feels an obligation to speak out, as she says in Cut 20. I'm only meeting... I'm only meeting with press because I'm I'm pleading that this not happen to another New Yorker, that it does not happen to another family. I don't want my brother just to be a passing name in the media, a passing name in our normalcy post-pandemic. She's pleading that this not happen to another New Yorker. You might not live in New York, but I think her grief... I'm sure her anger resonates with a lot of people in a lot of places. One more clip, cut 21. If you could ask them to do one thing to make sure that this is not, as you said, just a statistic, what do you want them to make a decision to do right away? I mean, I'm not very versed in city politics or planning, but from my history, a task force needs to be put in place. I spoke to Mayor Adams yesterday, and... I explained to him where negligence was prevalent in what happened on Sunday and where there miscommunication. I spoke to him and said, there's no cooperation. I know some people might want to put this on the cops, but what are the cops supposed to do when the bail laws are what they are, when the prosecutors won't prosecute, where low, quote-unquote, level crimes are treated almost like nothing? where you end up with dangerous people almost instantaneously back on the street. How is this tolerable in a civilized society? I think a lot of people will listen to the words and the anguish of Griselda Vile and conclude that it is intolerable. For his part, Mayor Eric Adams, a former police officer, had this to say about this incident, about this killing, in cut 15. It is my responsibility to keep New Yorkers safe. My heart goes out to that family. I am sorry that they lost their loved one. I thank God I'm the mayor right now and not those that don't understand the urgency of this moment. Okay, well, he's taking responsibility. He's passing along condolences to the family. He is a cop at heart. Part of the reason that he won the nomination and the mayor's race is because people were tired of Bill de Blasio and a certain direction that the city was going. At some point, though, the chest thumping, I'm not sure if that's the best look. I thank God I'm the mayor. Well, what you want is people in the city thanking God that you're mayor because their lives are improving and the city's getting safer. Not because you feel like you understand the urgency better than someone else. Maybe you do. I think Eric Adams is probably better at understanding that and better at having the cops back 
than the last regime up there. But that's different than getting results. And as I mentioned yesterday, these news articles buzz about Adams thinking about testing the waters for president. To me, that is crazy talk. Until at least he can point to a turnaround in New York City, a city that needs a turnaround. That requires action and results and him leveraging his power to actually achieve those things. So, again, I'm not sure him boasting that way and the people, you know, clapping in the background, maybe hold off on some of the bravado, given what just happened. And will continue to happen unless something changes. Crime is an issue in this campaign across the country for good reason. It is not a fever dream. It is not something that people are fear-mongering about, conjuring up scare stories out of nothing. It is real. And it's not just in the two deep blue cities that I mentioned at the top of this segment. But some of the patterns, some of the causes here, I think are pretty clear. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we talked to Dr. Nicole Sapphire on yesterday's program. You can go back and listen on the free podcast if you'd like, GuyBensonShow.com, about, among other things, the return of mask mandates in a number of school districts. Never went away in Boston. Now it's back in Philadelphia. There's a whole list of places that is growing. Another district in Massachusetts, a district in Berkeley, California, a district in Rhode Island, the district in Pennsylvania. These are blue places in blue states where the adults can't get off of stupid. They are stuck on stupid. They are stuck on anti-science nonsense, superstition, optics, not real science. We have study after study, including the biggest study of them all, just reality all around the globe, that shows that forced masking of children in schools is not an effective way to prevent transmission of COVID. And kids are, thank God, by far the least likely group of people to have severe COVID should they transmit it or should they contract it. And being in school, aside from all the other reasons why it's important for them to be in school, being in school is one of the safest places in society that they can be vis-a-vis COVID. There's a new study out of Cornell University that showed all of their so-called mitigation strategies that simply did not work at all against Omicron. And it's been published in an academic journal, and you just see the Omicron spike happen just like it happened everywhere else with no regard whatsoever to the masking on campus that was required and shutting certain things down and limiting activities and gatherings. None of that made a difference at all. That was at Cornell. Just one more data point, and yet you have these adults with power in some of these places saying, okay, cases are ticking up again. Let's forcibly mask young children again for absolutely no reason and the reason we won't stop talking about it is because the harms are not in the past tense they're not over they are in some places ongoing someone has to speak up for the reality the data the science and the well-being of children and we will be part of that chorus on the guy benson show final hour coming up next representative chip roy of texas will be here straight ahead
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every day. The final hour, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern, is the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific and expanding. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of goodies there. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. The podcast is available on demand and for free every day guy benson show.com i'll be on kennedy tonight on fox business network in the 7 p.m hour eastern hope to see you there over on the tv side always a blast with our friend kennedy and joining us now is congressman chip roy republican representative for texas's 21st congressional district and congressman good to have you back guy good to be on as always hope you're doing well I want to start with actually some breaking news, and let's actually bring in with a Fox News alert this story that is breaking today, first reported by Forbes and then being confirmed elsewhere. Authorities say that a man named Shihab Ahmed Shihab, who was living in Columbus, Ohio, is now in custody after the FBI says he was intending to smuggle between four and six individuals from Iraq into the United States via the U.S.-Mexico border. The goal of bringing in effectively this terrorist cell was to carry out an assassination attack against former U.S. President George W. Bush in Dallas, Texas, which is where he's living in his post-presidency. This according to court documents and law enforcement officials. Shihab allegedly wanted to conduct the attack against President Bush in the name of ISIS. Now, Congressman, this story sort of brings together a number of threads on issues that we talk about here on the show, one of which is foreign threats and national security. Another is the border crisis. And we've had people on this show, officials down at the border, we've been to the border, We did a couple of broadcasts from border cities in Texas where we talked to people on the ground, people in charge of trying to get their arms around this problem, and especially at the federal level, they are just being stymied at every step by the Biden administration. And they say this is not just a root causes problem of a few trouble spots in Central America and in Mexico where people are escaping true persecution. This is a phenomenon that involves well over 100 countries. The latest number that I heard was 156 countries, including some countries that have plenty of people on the terrorist watch list, whether it's Syria or Yemen, you name it. And I think the point, Congressman, of bringing all of this up to you is not to say that we should be overly concerned about a huge proportion of illegal migrants at the southern border being terrorists who are here with ISIS or whatever trying to kill Americans or assassinate U.S. officials. But I think the problem is that if the understanding around the world is that the easiest way to get into this country is through the southern border because it is largely open in a lot of key respects, 
that does create a bona fide, real national security threat on top of the sovereignty issues, on top of the public safety issues. And I'm wondering if you can just comment on what you are hearing and seeing about the border, an issue that you talk about a lot, and now folding in this latest development where, according to court documents, this was an ISIS terrorist here in the United States trying to bring in reinforcements at that vulnerable border to help him kill a living former president. Well, Guy, first of all, I mean, thanks for focusing on the issue. And second of all, uh, compliment to you. You just you just covered it pretty well. Um, you know, I, I, I don't need to get on here and opine. Everybody, including your listeners, knows where I stand on this. I think the question here that we the reason it's important to keep talking about it is to make sure that listeners and all Americans understand what's actually going on. Right. Because I'll tweet out something or I'll put something out that says 237,000 apprehensions in April or 1300 pounds of fentanyl seized or or fill in the blank. And all your liberal trolls and all the leftists out there, hell, even talking heads on the left, hell, even Jen Psaki will say something like, well, they, they, they got them. What are you worried about? They seized the, they seized the fentanyl. They, they nabbed those uh, 237,000. Right. That completely disregards the reality of what's happening at the border. And if you start with the premise that our laws require a secure border, because a sovereign nation needs a secure border, and that you have asylum exceptions because we're a good people, because we want people to be able to flee persecution. But asylum isn't an exception that can swallow the rule of security, which is what the Biden administration is doing. And that's really, really important for their listeners to understand. It's purposeful. They're, the vast majority of people coming here do not have credible fear of persecution. They come here seeking a better way of life. And, Guy, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I bet I can in saying God bless them. I do not uh, in any way second-guess or question why they're coming to the United States. God bless them for it. I do question our leadership for allowing this to occur, knowing that it endangers migrants, empowers cartels, and then to the point of your question here leaves our border exposed because Border Patrol spends all of their time processing asylum claims, most of which are false, and leaves our border wide open for the fentanyl and the terrorists. Now, remember, I sent a letter last August to the Secretary of Homeland Security. It took him eight months to respond, answering my question about how many terrorists are known or on the watch list or associated with terrorist countries had been uh, captured in the United States or uh, apprehended. And the answer is 42. And and that took them eight months to get us that data. And now we have probably a few more since then. And yet the secretary looked at me in a Judiciary Committee hearing and said to my question, do we have operational control of the border? He said, yes, we do, with a smirk. Like, they don't care, Guy. That's the reality. And everybody needs to understand, not just President Bush, all of us are in danger when you have fentanyl pouring in and you have possible terrorists coming in. And To your point, just to underscore it one more time, you're right. The snarky, stupid, half-baked, sort of counting on people's ignorance reply to the numbers of people encountered, you know, at the border or the fentanyl numbers in terms of what is seized or weapons seized. In fact, I saw it today from someone making this point, like, oh, I thought the border was open and we didn't have control over the border. And yet all of these statistics are based on control of the border that especially with the migrant apprehensions, that statistic overwhelmingly represents people who want to get caught. They want to come in. 
They want to get caught. In many cases, they surrender en masse to U.S. officials or Texas state officials because they want to be processed and they want to be released into the country. They've been given a script by the cartels. Here are the words that you say. These are the buzzwords that trigger the processing for potential asylum. And you'll be released and you'll get a court date. And in many cases, they never show up for the court date. That's the game that they're playing. It's a huge crush of people. And that crush that you mentioned overburdens our personnel who are basically running logistics at that point. And it opens up larger portions of the border for exploitation for people who don't want to get caught, who pay the cartels a lot more money to sneak them in without getting caught. The numbers that we have do not include the known gotaways or the unknown gotaways. People, we don't know who they are, but they are disproportionately more incentivized to try to elude capture, to try to elude our resources and our personnel. I'm not saying that even a majority of those people are criminals or terrorists or anything like that, but there really isn't an acceptable percentage of that group where the American people are like, well, that's the cost of doing business. We'll just allow X number of hardened criminals, cartel members, gangbangers, and terrorists into the country because, you know, shrug, oh, well, I don't think that that will sell with the American people. It's not selling with the American people. People can see how horrible the numbers have gotten, a record-smashing April. And here we are now in May, one day after Title 42 was supposed to go away. Congressman, I know that a judge has at least temporarily intervened and barred the administration from ending Title 42 the way they were planning to, and they say they still want to. Is that a sustainable ruling? My understanding of the Constitution is there's a lot of executive power here. I'm not sure this temporary injunction is really going to suffice. It it seems to me like a very temporary Band-Aid on a problem that is already gaping and probably still going to get worse. Yeah, your your use of the word Band-Aid is right. I use the phrase the Band-Aid on a gunshot wound because that's really what Title 42 itself is, much less the judicial ruling in question. For, for, For the listeners out there, keep in mind, we had 230, whatever, 7,000, give or take, apprehensions in April. About 117,000 of those were released into the United States. Mm-hmm. About 90-some-odd thousand were turned away under Title 42. So if Title 42 goes away because allegedly COVID is over, we can debate that separately, then then those 92,000 will go back into that first pool I told you about, and almost all of them will be released into the United States, very few of whom come back to their hearings for asylum uh, proceedings. So that's what we're dealing with. You mentioned the gotaways, about 2,000 a day, right? So about 60,000. That's the known gotaways. You mentioned the unknown gotaways. That's the reality of what we're dealing with. Now, Title 42, a judge issues a ruling. That ruling is based on the Administrative Procedures Act. He's probably right, but that's a temporary uh, extension, basically. The real problem is, is that Title 42 isn't the actual solution for the border. Right. Title 42 just represents the last vestige of security. I actually introduced legislation after consulting with Border Patrol and experts on this, uh, H.R. 7772. It's the Border Safety and Security Act. I'm not pimping a bill because it's mine. I want to just highlight what we're trying to do. We are trying to say that the Secretary of Homeland Security shall, notwithstanding any other provision of law, uh, turn away people at the border, shall turn away unless the secretary can certify that any individual that is brought into the country is fully detained through the entirety of an adjudication of any supposed asylum claim. That is what we think needs to be done. We think that's actually existing law, 
but it has been muddied over the years, and the secretary is exploiting that to turn people away. And I'm sorry, to not turn people away, and to then release them under parole, under uh, the ability to catch and release using vagarities in the law. We think he's well. And I would just say, I would say, Congressman, just to jump in, Title 42 is not a permanent solution because the pandemic crisis is you could argue, already over or at some point will be over. And that excuse, the public health side of it, won't really hold water anymore. Whether a judge can hold this up for a while or eventually Biden gets his way, ending Title 42 is going to happen at some point, maybe sooner, maybe later. And this is a brief respite, a a brief reprieve here. But whether it's your bill or another bill, something akin to Title 42, keeping that tool in place, for rapid, wide-scale expulsions is essential, and I feel like Congress needs to do that. I do not have a great deal of optimism that Congress, especially this Congress, will come anywhere close to doing something like that because they don't want to. They are fine with the border crisis except to the extent that it hurts them politically. I know that's a cynical statement, but I think it is borne out by reality and has been now for many months on end. You've mentioned a few times, Congressman, the Secretary of DHS, Alejandro Mayorkas, He had this message to potential illegal immigrants in a video that he recorded in Cut 29. Listen. The bottom line is that U.S. borders are not open. Individuals and families continue to be subject to border restrictions, including expulsion. Do not come to the border. Do not put your life at risk only to be sent back. Congressman, I mean, that would be fine if it were true, but... We know it's not true. The illegal immigrants know it's not true. The cartels who bring them across the border know it's not true. And the statistics that you just rehearsed for us underscore that point of the record setting number of encounters in April, which does not count any of those gotaways, as we mentioned, more than half of those were released into the United States, a.k.a. success from their vantage point. So you can have a U.S. official with the flag behind him in a nice suit with a well-produced video saying, don't come here, don't take the risk, the border's closed, you're not going to get in. And then they hear from family members and friends and others, actually, yes, many, many people are getting in. That's the magnet. That's not changing, unfortunately. Last word to you. Well, no, that's, that's exactly right. And, and look, what again, what everyone just needs to understand is when the secretary looks at the Homeland – or I'm sorry, the Judiciary Committee – the Secretary of Homeland Security looks at the Judiciary Committee and claims we have operational control of the border. When I ask him directly that question, he's lying, right? He's hiding behind the words he just said to migrants, which say, oh, we're expelling people. Yeah, but you're expelling a fraction, a mm-hmm. small fraction. You're defunding ICE. You're not allowing or you're not allowing ICE to do their job. You're not allowing ICE to arrest anyone who are here illegally unless there's some other crime associated with it. You are taking every step possible to make it impossible to actually turn people away, which is good for our country and migrants. And by the way, our neighbors in, in, in South and Central America, we can have a whole nother segment, Guy, about how we're destroying economic activity in our neighbors in the South, when we should be bolstering that. We should be exporting the rule of law. We should, instead of importing lawlessness and fentanyl, we should be coming together and have a strong Western Hemisphere to compete with China. But instead, we're having wide-open borders that emboldens cartels, endangers migrants, endangers Americans, and that's precisely what the administration is doing because they want to, just like shutting off our oil and gas supply, chasing unicorn energy. 
policies. They're doing the same thing for the border. It is absolutely indefensible, and I, I appreciate you highlighting it um, as we're talking about it here today in general. Oh, yeah, and the thing is the specious, facile talking points might fool a couple progressives on Twitter who will type away and click send, and it's like, oh, well, I've just won this argument. But they're not fooling anyone actually involved in the process, including, or I'd say even especially, the people coming here illegally and the people profiting enormously off of that human trafficking trade. And they're not fooling us on this show, which is why we keep talking about it over and over again. And this report about the assassination plot against President Bush and ISIS and coming through the southern border, that's just one news hook out of many about why all of this matters. Congressman Chip Roy of Texas 21, a Republican, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Guy. God bless. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show, and in the last hour, we told you about a shooting that we were following at a school, an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and we had very sketchy details at the time. In that last segment, we were talking with Congressman Roy. We had to chat with him with his schedule a little bit earlier in the day, so we didn't have him weigh in on the updates that we are now receiving, and we'll bring you a Fox News alert. And the update is absolutely stomach-turning and horrific. The death toll is now 15 at this elementary school, including, according to officials, 14 children and one teacher. We don't have details on the ages of the kids yet, although if they're elementary school students, that would be roughly 5 to 10. It is an unimaginable horror and an unfathomable evil that has been perpetrated by a suspect in South Texas. And we're seeing images of the kids being led out of the school, surviving kids, just awful. We will have details from Texas when we come back. An awful story unfolding on this Tuesday. It's The Guy Benson Show. We are back. It is The Guy Benson Show. We are following terrible breaking news. Fox News alert. In Uvalde, Texas, which is west of San Antonio, sort of between San Antonio and the U.S.-Mexico border, at Robb Elementary School, a horrible mass shooting took place earlier today. And officials in Texas now saying that 15 are dead, including... 14 students, children. An update now that we're getting is that those students were in second through fourth grade, so roughly seven, eight, and nine-year-olds. 14 of them murdered, a teacher murdered. Authorities in Texas say that the suspect is an 18-year-old who has been killed by responding police. There are rumblings that President Biden might address the nation tonight. Governor Abbott of Texas put out a statement moments ago saying Texans across the state are grieving for the victims of this senseless crime and for the community of Uvalde. Cecilia and I mourn this horrific loss and we urge all Texans to come together to show our unwavering support to all who are suffering. We thank the courageous first responders 
who worked to finally secure Robb Elementary School. I've instructed the Texas Department of Public Safety and the Texas Rangers to work with local law enforcement to fully investigate this crime. The Texas Division of Emergency Management is charged with providing local officials all resources necessary to respond to this tragedy as the state of Texas works to ensure the community has what it needs to heal. That was just minutes ago. Shortly before that, he made a statement on camera, the governor did, with a few more specifics about this atrocity. Here in cut one is Governor Abbott. The shooter was uh, Salvador Romas, uh, an 18-year-old male who resided in Uvalde. Uh, it's believed that he abandoned his vehicle and entered into uh, the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde with, with a handgun, and he may have also had a rifle, but that is not yet confirmed according to my most recent report. Uh, he shot and killed horrifically, incomprehensibly, uh, 14 students uh, and killed a teacher. Uh, Mr. Uh, Romus, the shooter, uh, he is he uh, he himself uh, is deceased, uh, and is believed that responding officers killed him. So again, some details yet to be sorted out. It is hard to even put into words how awful this is. This is the second worst elementary school shooting in U.S. history behind, of course, Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut. Fourteen kids and a teacher. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to understand. It is hard to even comprehend that level of evil. I don't want to get too emotional. I am generally an opponent of the death penalty because I think sometimes it is wrongly applied or unfairly applied. I think for something like this, where someone knowingly goes in and mows down defenseless children, that's where concerns and reservations tend to melt away. Now, in this case, based on what we heard from the governor, It's a moot point because this apparent shooter, a local 18-year-old, was, again, according to the governor, shot and killed by the police responding to the mass shooting. And I think one thing that is worth noting, we had the horrible racially motivated mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, not long ago, days ago. That was also an 18-year-old Suspect, an 18-year-old, broken, evil person. We don't know what the motive was here. We don't know what was inside this person's head. And to some extent, it almost doesn't matter. It's sick. It makes me sick. And we are awaiting a press conference probably coming up in the next hour where local officials will have the unenviable task of alerting the nation to even more elements of this crime that are very hard to hear. And there are families right now in South Texas 
who are being visited or getting phone calls that no parent or family should ever have to receive. News that no one ever deserves. A young child should be safe in his or her classroom. Not shot by a psycho with a gun. Totally defenseless. I want to bring you another Fox News alert. Another story on crime that we mentioned earlier in the show in the last hour, just about an hour ago, was this New York City shooting with an innocent man who was killed in cold blood in the New York City subway on Sunday by a gunman. The police were looking for him, and there was some reporting out there just before we went on the air almost three hours ago that there was some movement to bring that individual into custody. And that was confirmed over the course of this program. We've now seen video of the suspect being led in handcuffs into a precinct. This person, this alleged shooter, had 19 previous arrests and then killed someone who was on his way to brunch on Sunday. The NYPD held a press conference just minutes ago, and the commissioner gave us some additional information on that front, including this in cut four. The violence on the Q train last Sunday morning was committed by another repeat offender who was given every leeway by the criminal justice system. We cannot and will not stand for it. Today, a killer is off our streets, and we turn our attention to getting justice for Daniel Enriquez and his family. That's our focus moving forward in this case. And along with the district attorney's office and our other law enforcement, that's exactly what we are going to do. A killer now off the streets, but not before he killed. The killer who was given, quote, every leeway by the system. Arrest after arrest after arrest. She went on in cut three. The most basic purpose of the criminal justice system is to keep people safe. And in the only state in our nation where a judge is not allowed to consider dangerousness when setting bail, this was another, a yet another failure of that system. And now Daniel Enriquez is gone. His family and loved ones are suffering, and they rightfully want to know why. Well, there is no valid reason why. Because this horrific crime should never have happened. And I said two weeks ago, after the shooting of our officer, Dennis Vargas, that we need to right these wrongs. Well, that's out of New York. Obviously an extremely busy news afternoon in the worst possible way. That suspect in that murder, now apprehended, behind bars where hopefully, finally, he will stay. And then the lead story at this hour, out of Uvalde, Texas, west of San Antonio. An 18-year-old suspect is dead, killed by police after entering the Robb Elementary School earlier today and gunning down 15 people, including 14 children, between the ages of 7 and 9. We heard some of those details from Governor Abbott. We are awaiting a press conference, likely in the next hour. We will watch that overnight and bring you more details 
and analysis on the show tomorrow, and we might hear from the President of the United States later tonight. Homestretch is next. Homestretch on this Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show. Please tune in for Kennedy tonight. I'll be joining the panel with the grand lady herself and company around 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network, and then reappearing later in the program as well. So that's Kennedy, FBN, tonight in the 7 Eastern Hour. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here at the radio show, GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is free on demand every day, plus all sorts of other goodies there. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and on Instagram. I saw this story last evening. Ironically, I think I saw it very late at night. (laughs) I retweeted it because I was still up. I'm more of a night owl. I was watching one of the shows. The way that I unwind at night is to binge watch certain TV shows, typically crime, spy-type stuff. Those are the genres that I'm most into, particularly in that day part, if you will. But I'm also kind of half-distracted sometimes on my phone, and I saw this Axios story come across. The headline is, America Needs Sleep. Here's what the story says. Three factors determine 80%-plus of our longevity, diet, exercise, and sleep. Of those, sleep is by far the easiest to get right. We aren't, the story says about U.S. society. One in three American adults do not get enough sleep, defined as seven or more hours a night per the CDC. Although I'm sure some people are wondering, are they right about that? Or is that made up? Maybe Randy Weingarten can change the science on that. I'd love her to change the science to like nine hours. I'm a big sleep guy if I can get it. And it comes in waves for me, and I can explain that a little bit later here. But the average American, based on this Axios story, slept for almost eight hours a night, 7.9 hours a night in the 1940s. That number has dropped to 6.8 hours per night, which would be below the seven hours recommendation. Over time, operating without enough sleep can dramatically increase your risk of heart disease, stroke, cancer. This according to a heart health and sleep expert at the University of Warwick. Medical research has also linked insufficient sleep to obesity, depression, anxiety, and even heart failure and dementia. Lack of sleep also drives up individuals' costs of health care and companies' loss of productivity, according to studies. Employees who are not getting enough rest are far likelier to be unfocused, miss days of work, or get injured on the job. So this is the story. They always say, oh, you know, get, get a good night's sleep. It's good advice. I think that that's fair. For a lot of people, it's easier said than done. They've got jobs. They've got kids. They've got obligations. Sometimes it takes a while for me to power down my brain and fall asleep. I'm not a morning person at all, but there are times when I'm burning the candle at both ends, where I'm up late, then I have to get up early for TV or for travel or what have you. And the way that I typically end up doing it is if I'm having a bad sleep week in terms of the weeknights, let's say I'm having not enough sleep for a number of nights in a row, my body tends to require 
catching up on sleep. I don't know how the science behind that actually works. Whether the sleep deficit can be made up on the weekend, for example, just sleep in on on a Saturday. Sometimes I will sleep for 10, 11, even 12 hours, Friday into Saturday, if I feel like that deficit of slumber needs to be compensated for, and I'll do it there, and my body can sleep soundly for a long period of time under those circumstances. But overall, I would say I sleep about seven or eight hours a night. But sometimes it's down in the five or six hour range. And as I said, I try to make up for it if possible. And at some point, I have to make up for it. My body does not do well over a sustained period of time if I'm not getting enough sleep. I just know that about myself. Producer Christine... Are you a sound sleeper? I kind of struggle to believe that you are. Although whenever I do try to contact you about something important off hours, you are just knocked out. But apparently most other nights you struggle to sleep. Why is that? Just the nights that you call. No, I actually go to bed early. So the the amount of hours that I'm in bed would probably be maybe even eight to nine. But the problem is I can fall asleep completely fine but then one two in the morning i'm wide awake and there goes you know up and down up and down for the rest of the night and then i start to get anxiety that i'm not going to be able to go back to sleep and how much sleep am i going to get and that keeps you up and that keeps me not sleeping huh and why do you wake up at one o'clock in the morning i have no clue it just do or two three four it doesn't matter like you should do one of those sleep studies where they monitor you and they figure out, in some cases, what the problem is, because that would drive me crazy. Last night, I did not sleep well because I was up, I was watching TV, I was really tired, so I actually fell asleep and then sort of woke up, jolted awake on the couch. My dog, Roy, was still right there with me, but I was kind of like, okay, i got to turn off the TV, let's lock up the house, turn off the lights and go to sleep. I let him out, or at least I... Thought he had gone out to go to the bathroom. Then I bring him upstairs. It is middle of the night, 3 in the morning or something like that. And he was whining, which he never does, which means he either needs water or needs to go out. I realized maybe he had poked his head out the door when I opened it. He had not gone out and gone to the bathroom. So I had to bring him back downstairs. And I was hoping to just be quasi-comatose, head upstairs, go to sleep, and fall right back asleep. But because of this whole back and forth, it took me a while. So I'm not working on the best night of sleep right now, but that's an anomaly for me. As opposed to for you, it sounds like it's a regular occurrence. You might want to do one of those sleep studies. Oh, you should have them record you. Are you a sleep talker? I can imagine you say some hilarious stuff. Yes. My husband, um, a long time ago, had started a Twitter account called Chrissy Sleeps. Oh, right. Right, because you're a sleep walker, too. Uh, Yep, I walk, I talk. The walking kind of has stopped, but that was ever since I was a kid. I mean, my family gets together and talks about all the times, you know, I would be standing. It was scary, my mom and dad said. I would just be staring at them in the middle of the night, standing there. Mm -hmm. If I slept over a friend's house, I would walk into her parents' room (laughs) and just stare at them. That is like, you know, something out of a horror movie. Then you have an outburst where you're sweating and whispering loudly in a tortured manner about something or someone. I can't quite make out what she's saying. Is it something about carousel? 
What is carousel? I can imagine this would be the case. You should go in for one of these studies. I think you might benefit. You need yet another person monitoring your overall well-being, in addition to the whole retinue of, of people that you already pay. I think this one would probably be worth the investment because of the stats in this story. Diet, exercise, sleep. We got to run. I will not be asleep for hours because, A, it's 6 p.m. Eastern. B, I got to get ready for TV. On with Kennedy. Coming up in the next hour of Fox Business Network, we will see you there just after 7 Eastern. Back here on the radio, same time, same place, for The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.